If you're like me, during lockdown, you will have been doing a little bit more online shopping than normal. This week, having succumbed to another 70% off sale bargain, I was headed to the online checkout, expecting the usual credit card or PayPal options, only to be presented when I got there with five, yes, five different credit options that were immediately available to me at the click of a couple of buttons. Later on that same day, listening to the news, there was a feature explaining how due to the rise of online credit, more people have been getting into debt than ever before. It's no great surprise. After all, that's how the system is set up. But it occurred to me again how much of our society is set up in such a way that people lend money in order to make money. And the result for lots of people is debt, sometimes debilitating, life-destroying debt. According to the Bank of England, the average personal debt in the UK is now £30,375. And that doesn't include any student loans or student debt. If you add all that personal debt together, the total personal debt, not including any business debt, in the UK as of November 2020 was a staggering £1,692.5 billion. And it's only set to get worse. By January 2021, 8.9 million people said they had had to borrow more money than normal due to coronavirus. And unfortunately, the way our economic system is set up, it means that often it's the poorest in society who are the ones who end up paying the highest price. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer and a TED Talk speaker, and he said that the opposite of poverty isn't wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. It's often injustice, isn't it, that keeps people poor. For good and for bad, lending money to make money is the way our economic system has operated for centuries. But this wasn't the case in Old Testament times. In our passage today from Nehemiah chapter 5, we find a contingent of people who were involved in building the wall in Jerusalem, protesting to Nehemiah about the crippling debt that they found themselves in. You see, these people have been bought from, brought from their subsistence farms miles away from Jerusalem to work on Nehemiah's wall-building project. And the consequence has been that while they're there, they're not able to earn the money or grow the crops to feed their families. And so they've got into a desperate situation. And so other Jews from Jerusalem have stepped into this void They've lent them money with the sorts of conditions and interests which have led to crippling debt. And so they come and complain to Nehemiah saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during this famine. We're having to borrow money uh, to pay the king's tax. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, uh, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. But Nehemiah knows that this situation that these people have found themselves in should never have happened because the laws of the Old Testament should have protected the people from this sort of situation ever happening. You see, the covenant law set up between God and his people 
meant that all Jewish people were family. And so the expectation was that each member of the family would be looked after by the others when they got into trouble. And it's clear that this, in this system, lending money should never be a way to make money. Lending money was simply a way to show compassion to those in need. Leviticus 25 verses 37 and 38 says, you must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at profit. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Cana and to be your God. It wasn't completely unheard of in these times, even if the situation got really desperate, for people to put themselves, in a sense, into slavery, either themselves or their teenage children, perhaps in order to buy food. But again, the system was clear. Unlike the system of slavery in the modern world, the Jewish understanding of servitude, which is a better interpretation of slavery in this instance, meant that the person was never owned by their master. They just worked for them. And there was an obligation on their master to treat them well, to treat them like any other hired worker. And then at the year of Jubilee, every seven years, everyone was able to go back to their own family again. This God-given system outlined in Leviticus 25 was there to protect people. It was there to enable people to survive and to let them function as family, God's family. But we discover here in Nehemiah 5 that rather than obeying this set of rules, sets of, set of laws uh, and looking after their own, some people in the community have been lending these poverty-stricken workers money with interest, taking their children into slavery and basically exploiting them for their own means. It was a simple case of the powerful exploiting the desperate situation of those who found themselves powerless. Last November, amidst huge consternation and outrage, the UK government cut the overseas development budget by a third, from 0.7% of gross domestic product to 0.5%. Now, in real terms, that meant that due to the drop in economic growth in the UK over the previous year, the aid budget had already dropped by £2.9 billion from £15 billion before that cut to 0.5% of an ever-shrinking GDP. This means that when the UK gives, in a, what the UK gives in overseas aid is already drastically reduced before the cut from 0.7 to 0.5%. Pauline Latham MP said the decimation of the aid budget would lead to more child marriages, more instances of early childbirth, FGM, more domestic violence, and we will not be vaccinating millions. Andrew Mitchell, a former Conservative International Development Secretary, said in November that the aid cuts will be the cause of 100,000 preventable deaths, mainly among children. What do these statistics, what does this information do in you? Does it make you feel angry, pained at the injustice? 
Does it make you just feel cross at the government? Or maybe you just feel helpless and resigned or apathetic. What can I do to challenge the powerful machine of government? When Nehemiah is made aware of the injustice that his people are facing, he goes through a whole series of emotions, but is uncompromising in his response. His first response is anger. When I heard that their outcry and these charges, I was angry, he says in verse 6. And then he pauses. He knows that simply having a rant isn't going to do any good. It rarely does, does it? And, and I love a rant. I just love getting stuff off my chest. But I also know that a rant in itself gets me nowhere. And so Nehemiah gets angry and then pauses. He gathers himself and thinks through the situation before then taking action and presenting the reality of the situation to those at the heart of the problem, the nobles, the officials, those in power. You are charging your own people interests, he accuses. And he knows that to stop this exploitation becoming systematic and irrevocably corrosive, it has to be brought into the open now and it has to be confronted and agreed by the whole community now. And so Nehemiah gathers people together. You're selling your own people, he challenges them. But then comes the crunch point. Nehemiah calls them back to their true purpose for being here. Yes, we're here to build this wall, but this is not just about building a wall. All of this is for something far bigger. Verse 9, shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? He's basically saying, you know, you are God's chosen people. You are his holy nation. In these simple words, shouldn't you walk in the fear of the Lord? He's reminding them of the privileged position they're in, of being God's chosen people, of receiving his compassion and his forgiveness. If they want all that, then they have to take their part of the bargain seriously, to love God, to fear him, to revere him with their whole heart and to love others. And so Nehemiah calls the people to have reverence for God because he knows that honouring God above all else is the foundation of everything in his own life and leadership. And so it has to be the core of who they are as the Israelite people. And so he stands before them and he calls them to holiness. That means confess their sins. Holiness makes putting God first. It means to be the presence of the glory of God in that place. And the call on each one of us who claim to belong to Christ is to a life of holiness too. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. As Christians, holiness has been made possible for us because of the way that Jesus has opened up the way for all of us who believe and trust in him to enter the presence of God. Whenever we want, with all the rights and benefits of being a son and daughter, or son or daughter of the Father. 
So what does saying yes to a life of holiness look like? Three things. Firstly, it looks like confessing our sin as well and pursuing a life of purity. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. However much they tried, nobody could find any dirt on Jesus. Now, we're not Jesus. Sin is an ongoing battle for all of us, me included. And we all know the areas that we struggle with as individuals and we struggle with as a society. But because of Jesus, we live in the light of this reality outlined in 1 John 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So a call to holiness is a call to confess our sins. It's a call to purity. Secondly, a call to holiness means we put God first. Now, how did Jesus live this? Well, he just thinks God first, doesn't he? You know, he seeks his father out in everything. He spends time with him in prayer. He surrenders everything to the father. Jesus prioritizes spending time with his heavenly father before he goes and does anything. Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to quiet places to pray. Are we sacrificing time to give to Jesus? Are we desiring to spend time with him in prayer every day, not just as an afterthought, but because we know that our primary number one calling is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. A call to holiness means we're putting Jesus first. And then thirdly, a call to holiness means let the world see Jesus through you. John 1.14 says that the word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory full of grace and truth. The presence of the glory of God was seen fully in the person of Jesus. And now as people who are filled with the spirit of Christ, we too are filled with the presence of the glory of God. People saw in Jesus the glory of God through his actions, through his words, through his acts of compassion and mercy, through the way he fought for justice and spoke of justice, the way he dealt with the oppressed, the way he brought peace into situations, the way he accepted those on the margins. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't go around uh, wearing a big badge saying, I am a Christian. You know, I don't even wear my vicar uniform, a dog collar, as attractive as that is. So how do people know who my God is, where my dwelling place is? One of the ways that the world will see and experience the presence of the glory of God today is through spirit-filled Christians like you and like me, courageously living out the fruits of the spirit in our lives and leadership. They'll see it by the way that we use our voices, our influence, our skills to challenge the broken places of our world, to bring in the love and the compassion and the healing of Jesus where it's most desperately needed. Preacher and writer Frederick Buchner beautifully explained our calling as Christians as being the place where our deep gladness meets the world's deepest need. 
And so let the world see Jesus in you through your life, through your words, through your actions, through the way that you're generous without seeking reward, through the way you and I as individuals and together as church work for the empowerment of those who find themselves at the bottom of the pile of society. Nehemiah stood firmly on the rock of truth and holiness. And it's from this place of deep gladness that he steps out and acts with courage to face and challenge the people with their moral failure, to call them back to holiness. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you continue to speak into each one of our lives as we sit and listen to what you've got to say to us today. Stir us up. Remind us of where we can be your person in our society, through our work, in our communities. Let's just hold a moment of quiet just to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your life, to challenge you, to nudge you. Father God, like Nehemiah, help us to respond rightly with righteous anger to the injustice in our world. Help us to respond as you would respond. In Jesus' name, amen.